Like some of you, this week I had the opportunity to uh, get a notification on my telephone, on my phone, uh, saying that I had a package delivered from UPS. We call the UPS truck Brown Santa. So I was pretty happy that Brown Santa made a delivery. Uh, Someone had recommended a particular book to me, uh, and I was so excited to get the book from UPS. I paid good money for this book. I was excited. I sat on the front porch, opened it up, and the first three words were these three words. Life is difficult. How do you think I felt? Well, you might feel terrible, right? I spent good money on this book. Somebody recommended the book. Life is difficult. I'm so used to people telling me everything's going to be okay, right? I'm so used to people telling me, follow your dreams, follow your passions. Everything's going to work out in the end. Everything's fine. Christians tell me this. Non-Christians tell me this. Maybe especially Christians tell me this. They say, everything's going to be great because God wants you to have a great life and everything's going to be wonderful because you're a Christian. Life is difficult. Well, I have to tell you, I felt great. I felt great because I'd been studying First Peter all week. And First Peter is a book that helps us understand that life is difficult. Life is absolutely difficult. Life is difficult because we live in a broken world. So it's difficult for everyone, but it's also extra difficult for Christians because we're followers of Christ. And Jesus himself said to us as Christians, in this world you will have trouble or tribulation. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So we have kind of the double whammy. Life is difficult. It's so good to hear that. That was like hearing that from a friend because it's true. So what I would like to do this morning is have us start our study of 1 Peter, that little book of the New Testament, and have us start it with that in mind. Life is difficult, okay? And it's extra difficult if you're a Christian and we don't want anyone to tell us otherwise. Or we're being lied to, we're being misled, we're setting ourselves up for huge crashes, But what's amazing in 1 Peter is we have emphasized what's true about Jesus Christ. It's awesome. Somebody referred to 1 Peter as a baby Romans. And they meant that as a compliment. Who is Jesus and what has he accomplished? And then 1 Peter does a great job emphasizing who we are if we're united to Christ by faith. And we have all of these rich blessings, Christ and all of his benefits given to us freely because of what he's accomplished. And we have the sure, absolute confidence and hope of heaven where everything will be great and there will be no difficulties. And First Peter also helps us to understand that this is not heaven, that this is not our forever home, that in this world we're going to have difficulties and we're going to have trials, and we're going to have... As a matter of fact, Peter talks about all these various kinds of trials. So it's very, very relevant. You're going to have a hard life. I'm going to have a hard life, even amidst the the happiness. And then it's going to be extra hard sometimes because we belong to Jesus. 
but we can know that we belong to God in Christ. And when Jesus comes back, He hasn't come back yet. This isn't heaven on earth. But when He comes back, then all of the difficulties will be gone. But in the meantime, in the in-between time, we can know this. We can have the right perspective. And we can find joy, as a matter of fact. And we can find encouragement. But we've got to keep it straight in our heads. This is not heaven, so we shouldn't expect it to be. We're not yet glorified. We learned about that in 1 John. But because Jesus' work is done on our behalf... It's as good as done. It's absolutely certain. So live in the now time for His honor and glory, even with rejoicing. Such a great pastoral letter for us. If you would, if you turn to the very end of 1 Peter, he tells us actually why he writes the letter, and it'll really help us to understand this. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 12, we have a good summary of what he's, he's seeking to do to help us as Christians. Chapter 5, verse 12, says by Silvanus, he's the deliverer, the, the, the messenger, if you will, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting or encouraging, it's meant to be positive, exhorting, encouraging, and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it wants to help us, wants to encourage us, wants to exhort us. Do you want to know what the true grace of God is? The true grace of God is not what the person tells you on television, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and if you're not, something's wrong with your Christianity. That's not the true grace of God. The true grace of God, that God might leave you if you're not faithful enough. No, that's not the true grace of God. The reason bad things are happening to you is because you're doing bad things. No, that's not the true grace of God. And he's going to answer all of these correctives. I'm having problems in my home, so something is wrong with Jesus or something's wrong with your Christianity. No, that's not the true grace of God. The true grace of God given to you in Christ is, we're going to learn in 1 Peter, His work is done. It was personal. It's because He cares. Redemption accomplished. Rest in Him. Live a life of gratitude unto Him even amidst the difficulties that you absolutely will face because this is not heaven. That's the true grace of God. He's going to help us. He's going to help every single one of us who are willing to listen. Because this applies to every single one of us. Some of you, I mean, the list could go on. I could just start talking about everyone in here and make everyone uncomfortable. But we all have our problems. Physical, mental, relational. And we're going to have more problems until we breathe our last breath. Different kinds of challenges, various challenges, various trials. As a matter of fact, Peter says that in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Chapter 1, we're going to get to that probably next week. The grace of God will inform you on how to live in light of who Christ is and who you are in Christ. It's great stuff. Great stuff. Someone referred to 1 Peter as a discipleship manual for the Christian life. 
And I think that's a good way to put it. It, 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 it takes, if I can simplify, great, awesome, lofty theology. Understanding who God is and how He works. And helps you to see that in how you relate to others. And how you think and how you act. How you suffer. Your perspective. Your perspective on God and how He's worked for you in Christ. So self-perspective, if you will, but let's be more God-centered, right? Perspective on who you are in Christ. Perspective on who you are in this world. It can really, really help you. It can really help me. And live lives that have joy. That's emphasized in First Peter, that we can have joy even when we, when we maybe aren't happy. Because we understand things. We have perspective. It's really going to be great, I think. I think, hope, and pray. So today what we're going to do is cover the opening two verses because in the opening two verses he really kind of, in real simple terms, uh, lays, lays the groundwork for the, for the whole thing. Okay? Uh, and then at the end of the service, how appropriately we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to eat and drink in remembrance of Jesus as he is said to do. Uh, and what a great compliment to First Peter. Because of who Jesus is, you're resting in him and even motivated for praise, motivated for service because of what he's already accomplished. It'll be great. Okay, you ready? Okay, this means yes. I get so excited about this kind of stuff. This is great. If I could just be discipled by First Peter. If you could just be discipled by First Peter, which is what we're going to do. If my kids can be discipled by First Peter, your kids or your parents or grandparents, it really will change because our perspectives change. First Peter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I wrote down in my notes, Peter, the guy who knows stuff. Okay? Sorry to be so sophisticated early on a Sunday morning. The guy who knows stuff. I mean, just think about who Peter is. Think about the fact that he's one of the twelve, so he spent lots of time with Jesus. Oh no, he's one of the inner circle three with James and John, so he really knew Jesus. Uh, Peter, who was there and witnessed the crucifixion. Peter, who was there and saw the resurrected Christ. Peter, who was there at the ascension. Oh, Peter, who was there earlier at the transfiguration. Peter, who had apostolic authority and apostolic giftedness and did apostolic miracles. Based upon experience alone, he knows what he's talking about. But then, 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 think about the fact that Peter knows some stuff when he's going to talk to us about grace. Mr. Cosmic unfaithful failure, but Jesus kept him anyway. It's good to hear this from Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I want to say something about apostle in a second, but before I forget, apostle of Jesus, king ultimate king, ultimate long-awaited, anticipated Messiah, king of kings. Not just stylistic, because that's how you're supposed to sort Christian letters. 
Even if it's subtle and couched, remember, life is not good for us as Christians if this is not heaven. We might have a lot of good, but there's going to be hostility. There's going to be difficulty. These people are facing hostilities. Peter's facing hostilities, but we we have to remember Jesus, the King, the Messiah. He hasn't come back yet, so don't get confused or you will buy into bad theology and you'll be ultra, ultra confused when it comes to perspective. But He is nevertheless. Don't forget, He is the ultimate ruling, reigning, delivering, messianic, long-expected king. Helpful. Super helpful. Apostle, I say it all of the time. Um, Authority. One who is sent, not just one who is sent, one who is sent with authority. And so, Peter speaks gospel truth. Okay? In a very literal sense. He's not speaking on his own authority. Okay? If he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's red letter. So he knows what he's talking about. He understands, not just because of experience, although he had the experiences, but he is writing here, not just as Peter, he's writing as Peter, an apostle. The unique one who knows things. Okay, let's keep going. How about verse 1 goes on to say, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. One important thing to know about that is it's a general kind of letter and that doesn't sound very exciting. But I actually find it exciting. It's a general letter written to all of these different areas in a particular region, uh, modern-day Turkey. But I think it's significant that it's a generic kind of letter. So it's not written to a particular church with particular problems like the church at Corinth. He's writing to all of these different churches, uh, spanning enough area, scholars tell us, uh, that it would go from... Uh, It would be like the southern United States from Texas to California. So big region, maybe named because this is the order in which this same letter would be delivered. But the reason I like and am encouraged by the fact that it is a general letter is because he's dealing with general Christian realities. And we deal with general Christian realities. Yes, we could study 1 Corinthians. That's a great study. And a lot of the things they struggled with, we might struggle with as well. But it's pretty particular. This isn't pretty particular, if you will. These are Christians who are suffering because of life in general and because of hostility against Christ in a Christian perspective. And so he's helping them in a general way. I love that. Give me the general. Help me understand these things. He's writing to people like us. And how does he refer to them? Elect exiles of the dispersion. The dispersion. One Bible scholar says we should feel the drama here. Elect exiles of the dispersion. I don't know about you, but it it doesn't necessarily cause me to feel drama. 
Oh, elect exiles of the dispersion. I think I heard that song, XM Radio. No, it doesn't really it doesn't really draw some kind of emotion from me. But if we're if we're reading that written to Christians, most scholars would believe primarily Gentile Christians, and he uses that kind of language. Elect exiles of the dispersion. Those who've been dispersed, who've been scattered. That's Jewish language. That's language that had been used for the Jews when they were not in and around Jerusalem. They'd been dispersed. They'd been scattered. Oh, elect exiles. That's, that's language that's used for Jewish people. And now he's using that language for Christians. New covenant people. He's using, he's borrowing, and so that, that's why that scholar says we should, we should feel the drama in the description. He says, Peter is writing primarily to Gentiles, to those who had no part in the people of God, but who followed the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers. That's quoting chapter 1, verse 18. He's borrowing the language. Now, we're going to get into maybe some reasons why, but for now, let's just at least see that he wants to use the experience of the Old Testament believer, the Old Testament people of God, we could say, exiled, dispersed, persecuted, not in Jerusalem where they would want to be, not in the promised land where they would want to be, scattered, but they want to be in the promised land, but just because they're not there doesn't mean God hates them if they're believing. So he's using that kind of imagery. And it doesn't take much for us to go, huh, that's kind of interesting. We'll say more about that because it actually is important. But there are two words this morning that will help you understand the whole book. And we have those two words there in verse 1. And the words are elect and exile. Elect and exile. Those are the two words, boys. I always try to give my kids something to think through. Elect exiles. If you take those two words, you kind of see how the whole, whole book unpacks. Elect, chosen, same word that's used. We've learned about this recently in Romans chapter 8. They're the elect, they're the chosen ones of God. God has chosen them to uniquely place His love upon them. Chosen. They belong to Him irreversibly so. And exiled. See, it's kind of like oil and water. We belong to God in Christ. Chosen. Old Testament language. This is wonderful. Irreversibly so. Exiled? Persecuted, suffering, not in our forever home, longing for the new Jerusalem. This just doesn't seem right. And First Peter's helping us as Christians to understand that while you're elect, right now you're exiled, and that's how it's going to be, and that's why you have difficulty in your life. But it doesn't mean you're not elect anymore. Keep pursuing, keep going, keep seeking to honor the Lord, everything's fine. In the sense that this is part of God's program until Christ returns 
this is how it's going to be. I kind of just preached the whole sermon, so we should probably close the service. Not really. We won't do that. Uh, let me take the time. He calls them elect. Some of you are brand new Christians. Some of you have been Christians for a little while. Some of you have been a Christian for a long time. So elect in the Bible. Chosen. Same word that's used. You can learn about it in the New Testament. Jesus talks about elect. He talks about choosing. I remember the first time I ever heard a sermon on election. I knew right away that it was wrong. Because I knew that wasn't in the Bible. That just doesn't seem American. But I believe the Bible was true and the pastor was reading from Ephesians chapter 1 and I had to have a change of mind and heart. So if you're new to the Bible, you're new to this reality, the Bible does teach election and he refers to these people as elect. Okay? I just had a conversation with a member who I think is out of town so I won't call on her. I wouldn't anyway. But she said, I was at the pool talking to friends and we're talking about Bible things and it was going so well. And then the husband got involved and, and I said something about suffering and it's so good to know that God has an elective purpose or something like this. And he just read me the riot act. That's not Christian. What are you, some kind of Calvinist or something? So if you're new to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, awesome, you're in the right place. Elect. He refers to Christians as elect, or it could be translated, same Greek word, chosen. Jesus, for example, said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. He's the initiator. Now, I want to say more about it, but let me just also say, for those of you who are a little bit um, more mature in the faith, that's a nice way to say it, and for those of you who are new, and everyone in between, let's remember that it's not a club. I don't mean belonging club, I mean a wooden thing that Fred Flintstone would use, okay? Or some cave person, in case I need to be missional and you don't know who Fred Flintstone is. Elect is not a club to beat people with. In fact, it's used in the Bible. It's used here. I know that it's used here, and I know it's used by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. It's designed to encourage so here we are afflicted, here we are persecuted, here we are suffering because of something, well, whatever, for whatever reason, and a great balm, a great encouragement, a great soothing reality to us that encourages us, God chose us. So when your spouse is angry with you, because you belong to Christ, or your boss, or you lose the job, or you fill in the blank, chosen. I belong to God. And we're not going to do a whole study on this, but it's meant to encourage. Peter's going to use it to encourage. It's positive. When everything looks like it's going to hell in a handbasket, we might say, to get your attention. Elect. I belong to Him. It's going to be okay in the end. Please allow that to encourage you. It's one of the things that's going to lead to joy in First Peter. I belong to God in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. His work has been applied to me sufficiently because He chose me to set His love on me. But it would be a mistake 
And it's a mistake in the minds of some Christians, and Peter's going to address it, to think, I'm elect, therefore, this is my best life now. And so he uses the second word, right? Exile. Think about the word excluded. Who likes to be excluded? I've got a pretty quirky personality, but I don't like to be excluded. I want to be accepted. Especially by certain kinds of people. I want to be accepted. I want to be liked. There's something wrong with us when we don't want to be liked. I I don't want to be excluded. I want to be included. Whether it's on a sports team, or whether it's in a particular kind of job, or certain kind of friendships, or certain kind of different kind of clubs, or groups, or whatever it is, family members... I want to be included. And here he writes to Christians saying, you're excluded. There's going to be an experience of being in exile. Other places in 1 Peter, he talks about being strangers and aliens. We don't belong. We're different. We're outsiders. And we need to remember that. An exile is a temporary resident. Some of you are not citizens of the United States. You may enjoy some of the privileges, but you may not have other privileges. You might be fine with that, or it might really bother you, and you don't feel as at home as you did when you were in your home country. Anytime I've ever traveled outside of the country, been to lots of different places, enjoyed things, laughed, smiled, but never once. Productivity, yes, never once did I not long for home. Never once did it even, um, every single time in other words, it always caused me to long for home. And every single time, it caused me a fair amount of anxiety. Some kind of worry, some kind of unsettlement, some kind of fear because I wasn't at home. I didn't belong. I wasn't a citizen of that place. And I get back to America, and I love America. I love me some America. It's where I reside. It's where I belong. I have citizenship here. So we can understand. This, this is not where we have our citizenship. We're exiled, and so it makes sense that that our morality is going to be a rub sometimes. Because we belong to Christ, and we want to live for Christ and honor Christ. And our thinking and believing, we're we're monotheists. We, We believe in the one true living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made Himself known in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that you must believe in Jesus in order to be forgiven, or you can't be forgiven. We believe in, in all of those kinds of things because we belong to Jesus and that's what he said, so we quote him. And, and that, that creates hostility where there's idolatry and so there's going to be a rub. Exiles. Some ways we try to fit in, we try to do our thing. We, we're not called to go and live in communes. We're involved in the world, right? But there's something about it, especially at certain times and seasons. I can, I, there was one job I didn't get, and I'm 99% sure it was because I was a Christian. 
because I wouldn't do what they wanted me to do with clients or potential customers. No big deal. For some of you, I suspect in our current climate when it comes to you follow Christ and you're nice about it, it won't matter and you will lose your job. I don't wish that upon any of you. But I would be shocked if it doesn't happen. Shocked. Elect. All of these great privileges, a sure hope, wonderful, great. You can't forget that. It is the greater reality. But you are in exile. And sometimes things aren't so bad for exiles. And sometimes, sometimes things are really bad for exiles. This is meant to encourage us regardless if it's a good time or a bad time. You know, if you need to put a name with the face borrowing from the Old Testament, uh, you, you could think of Daniel. Some good times, some not so good times. You're not, you're not promised any of the good times, by the way. I realize lots of times people don't come to church to, to hear life is difficult, and I'm telling you that. Sorry. But I want to tell you what's true. Life is difficult. Remember who you are in Christ and remember you can rejoice and remember you can honor Him and remember this is not your, sorry, HGTV forever home. I love watching HGTV. I don't know what's wrong with me. I maybe need to turn in my man card. I don't know. Man, I love with the international travel and they're looking for the different house somewhere else. You're thinking about, oh, I want to live there, you know, and... and the funniest is when you watch like the regular ones and you know they're they're in uh, they're in Wisconsin somewhere my daughter Natalie and I were laughing about this the other night and they're in Wisconsin and one is an artist and um, you know does has some art and the other one is uh, I don't know what they happen to do but something that doesn't seem like they make a lot of money and their budget is like $500,000 like what I don't get it I guess that's why we all live in Omaha <laughs> cheap dirt. Uh, <laughs> how did we get off on that? HGTV. Oh, because they talk about we're looking for our forever home. And I know what they mean. I get it. That's it's fine. But I'm going to borrow that this morning and say, this earth is not your forever home. You don't even belong. Ultimately. I want to encourage you, okay? Let me encourage you with Hebrews chapter 13, a great cross-reference. Hebrews chapter 11, a great cross-reference to what we're learning about. And then we need to get things moving a little quicker. No more HGTV stories. It says in Hebrews 13, 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Okay. We don't have a lasting city here. Remember, in the Old Testament, it's Jerusalem, 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 temple, temple, temple. It's where God uniquely dwells. Well, we're living in the new covenant reality of we're not waiting for new Jerusalem in the Middle East. We're waiting for a new heavenly city that's not here yet. 
We need it to come from Christ Himself. Hebrews 11.16 But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Heavenly Jerusalem is what we wait for. We're strangers and aliens here. It's interesting. Peter calls himself, or he says about himself in chapter 5, verse 13, he says he's writing from Babylon. And I don't know of anybody who thinks he's actually writing from Babylon, but he's using the, the imagery. I'm writing from a, uh, from a place of exile too. I'm writing from Babylon. But we're waiting for something greater that will last forever. One scholar put it this way. Edmund Clowney put it this way. After God delivered them in the exodus from Egypt, Israel became a pilgrim people journeying through the wilderness to the land of promise. That wilderness experience became the model for understanding the life of God's people as a pilgrimage. Old Testament pilgrims. First Peter's filled with Old Testament t- terminology, Old Covenant terminology, talking to New Covenant people. He's borrowing the imagery, the types and the shadows, if you will, so we understand. He's talking about Babylon. He's talking about exile. He's talking about elect, so that we could understand. This is not our home. I get excited about this stuff. I get excited about this stuff because I have problems in my life and they're probably only going to get bigger. And I deal with people with problems in their life and sometimes they're big. Doesn't mean there aren't other things we can't do, but we've got to have the right perspective. Elect exiles. In relation to God, we're elect. In relation to society, we're exiles. Maybe that's an oversimplification. Why is this happening to me? That's what I want to say. God, why is this happening to me? Let's keep going. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. <laughs> it's good to say, why is this happening to me? It's according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Foreknowledge, so often used as it is used in relationship to people. It's foreloving. It's relational, not just see foreseeing circumstances. It's because the Father loves and cares and has a plan and has a purpose and it's unfolding, it's not a mistake. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Makes me think of Romans 8, 29 and 30. That really helps Pat Abendroth with his complaining. It should anyway. <laughs> Doesn't mean my bad situation isn't bad, but you know what? God is, is in control and has a purpose and plan for Pat's life. Pat, who can complain because he doesn't even say his last name right. What kind of weird, dysfunctional family did I come from? It should be Abendroth. I come from a long line of German sinners. I'm a dysfunctional person. I lead a dysfunctional life in a dysfunctional family. God, why me? Well, God has a purpose and a plan. Not an excuse to sin. But God has a purpose and a plan even for the hard things. Oh, not only do we have the Father, though, let's keep reading. In the sanctification of the Spirit. 
So we, yeah, you might guess it. We're going to have the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. The triune God is involved in this plan and purpose for us. The Spirit is involved. Sanctification of the Spirit, probably that, that initial and then ongoing work of the Spirit because he's talking about God, God electing, God foreknowing, foreloving, and then he sets us apart unto Christ. We're going to learn next week that he causes us to be born again. The Spirit does. And so we're safe and secure as His elect. Sanctification of the Spirit is involved. And then it says in verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Why is this happening? The plan of the Father working together with the Spirit and the Son. And it's somehow ultimately for my good and for His glory is the answer to the question. Ever so quickly, it says in verse two, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the and for sprinkling with His blood. On the surface, it looks like he's emphasizing we're saved in this difficult time so that we'll obey Jesus, and that's true. We're going to see that in First Peter. It's absolutely true. We're saved to serve. We're saved to honor Christ. We're supposed to imitate Christ. We're going to see that in First Peter. But what's interesting is that doesn't really fit the pattern. It's the Father does this, the Spirit does this, and then it sounds like, and now we do this. And we could say it's empowered because of our union with Christ. But there is another way to translate it, and some New Testament scholars translate the Greek text differently. They translate it this way. Because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. And I have to tell you, I'm pretty sympathetic to that view. It's awkward grammar. People write all kinds of pages trying to figure it out because the other way, the way our translations usually put it, doesn't seem to really make sense and it's not smooth. Another legitimate way to translate it is it's because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. The Father works. The Spirit works. The Son works in obedience, fulfilling the law, making sure you're accepted by God. You're safe and secure. I'm partial to that view. And it actually fits the second part, sprinkling with His blood. There's the atonement part. We've got the positive work of Christ and His obedience on our behalf, fulfilling all righteousness. And then the negative, taking away of our guilt with the sprinkling of the blood, atonement forgiveness. Why is this happening? It's happening to us. We're strangers and aliens and yet elect because of the work of the triune God on our behalf, even because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. We'd better end with verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that certainly would come in and through the triune God on our behalf as he sees fit. I so want to keep going. I so, blessed be the God and Father. He's going to erupt in praise because he's already said so many great things regarding our perspective that it's just going to be gratitude unto God for what he's done for us. And what a great, great, kind exhortation that is to people who are suffering, even as he is. So let's pray together and we'll come back next week. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the fact that we learn about you and we learn about your mysterious work and works, 
And Lord, may it cause us to want to bless you as a response, to praise you, to give you the honor and glory that you and you alone deserve. I pray for the men and women and boys and girls of Omaha Bible Church here today, as well as those who are visiting, that you might impress them with the greatness of yourself, your great work and care and design, even for our redemption and salvation, that it may lift us up may help us, it may sustain us to live lives that would bring honor and glory to Christ and not shame to His name. Lord, we don't want hardship. We don't go looking for difficulty or persecution. And yet we do know that it even happens, that it does in fact happen. And we know that it's not apart from Your perfect purposes and plan for our lives working in and through us. Help us to look to Christ and not just to our problems and may it bring honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.